1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Mark Zachary Taylor, otherwise known as Zach, um, to talk about his extensive research on the Gilded Age in his book, Presidential Leadership in Feeble Times, Explaining Executive Power in the Gilded Age. This was published by Oxford University Press in 2024, 2023, something to that effect. Um, And I'm going to ask Zach to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this extensive project that takes up the presidents from Andrew Johnson to... Teddy Roosevelt, um, sometimes referred to as the black hole of the American presidency, um, because most people don't know very much about, oh, I don't know, Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, So Zach, welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project.
1: Thank you very much, Lily, and great introduction. Um, So one thing that brought me to the Gilded Age presidency is obviously, you know, we don't learn much about of it, much about it in high school or college, that we tend to think of it as a black hole. But so much amazing stuff happened. There were uh, political assassinations, financial crisis, labor uprisings, um, uh, national pandemics. There was technological change, and all sorts of drama and crazy personalities. And once you get into it, and I see that television shows like The Gilded Age on HBO are beginning to tap into all this drama, it's just just incredible. And these politicians, both in the presidency and in uh, Congress, are just these amazing personalities. So just from a purely fun historical interest point of view, it's a great time period. More seriously, I'm a scholar of national economic competitiveness. I'm interested in the politics and economics of why some countries are able to compete and others are not, and how they change over time. And I've done about 25 years of research on the politics and economics of innovation, of science technology. And I wrote a book called Politics of Innovation, which at that. And there was an aspect of innovation that sort of left unsp- unexplained and had something to do with leadership, as far as I could tell. And I wanted to dig deeper into that. Uh, also, at about the same time, this is back in 2012 when Obama was running for re election. And on the news, you heard all these pundits saying, Obama the worst president for the economy ever or no he was the best president ever or no wilson was or roosevelt was and all this. and i realized that in the course of my research on us economic competitiveness i asked a load of data on inflation rate uh stock market performance economic growth unemployment strength of the dollar trade deficits debts all this stuff and i said you know I've got the data where you could actually create a purely empirically based ranking, economic ranking of the presidents. And I did that sort of for fun and published it in 2012. And people can go on my uh, website, mzac.net, or look up in, uh, I believe it's in uh, Perspectives on Politics, um, and and check that out. Um, And it just looked sort of like a mismatch. There was no, it wasn't the fact that Republicans were better or Democrats were better or the businessmen, presidents were better, or it was just sort of random. But The way you really have to get into this is to dig into the qualitative data. Quantitative data shows correlation, not causation. So you really got to get into those stories. So I really immersed myself in the American presidencies and honed in on the Gilded Age because so much was going on economically, and the presidency themselves are considered so weak, perhaps the weakest in American history. So the idea is, at, if the presence can be shown exerting influence on the economy at this time, when they're supposedly so weak, when the federal government itself as a whole is so weak, then that has important lessons for us throughout the rest of time. And again, the Gilded Age has a lot of similarities with what's been going on in the United States over the past 20 to 40 years. So there might be lessons and analogies for us today. So that's sort of how I got it, a long story of how I got into this.
2: But you also have been studying, um, as a political scientist, aspects of the U.S. presidency, of the American presidency. Um, And so part of that was your curiosity about sort of these questions of, as you note, you know, presidential greatness um, that oftentimes historians and political scientists are asked to assess. Um, and, you know, there's there's always this question of like, who's on the top and who's on the bottom? And then there's, of course, the mass in the middle. Um, and And so how did that sort of question uh, also with regard to presidential greatness, with regard to, say, economics and the economy of the time that a person is president, how did that inform some of your sort of pursuit of this topic?
1: So not too much. I was aware of the greatness surveys. I think they're a lot of fun. Uh, I've been asked to participate in some of them. But I realize that a lot of them are just kind of emotional reactions to presidents. Most people have favorites or not. A lot of it has to do with whether they fought a war or not, whether you know president during a war, uh whether there was sort of some famous event going around. So they're not really objective, they're not very fact-based. So, I think that the, the there, and they're tend to be, again, very foreign policy rather than domestic policy focused. So, I like the presidential greatness surveys, but I think they're more a popularity contest than anything else, even amongst scholars. I've been studying the American president for a good decade now and going deep into every single one. And there are still ones who I can speak much more expertly about. Than Others and I don't know uh, if you know anyone else is 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 really can speak authoritative or anyone can speak authoritatively about all and weigh them in a scientific way.
2: And I mean that was what I found interesting because you're sort of pushing against this this sort of framing because presidents from Andrew Johnson to um, the Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, as I already mentioned, as you've mentioned, are not necessarily rolling off the tip of anybody's tongue in the United States. Um, These are not Lincoln, FDR, Reagan, um, Washington, Jefferson. uh, And and a lot of times when I teach the, the presidency, I ask my students, can you tell me who was president in that period? They get Grant. After that, Nothing. Um, <laughs> and so we have this sort of group of presidents that you know, comes after Lincoln after the Civil War, after that really you know difficult chapter in American history. And they have policies. but again, my students can't really talk to me about any of the policies that they have because we don't necessarily know very much about them. And you dig deep into each administration, and their policies, specifically their economic policies, because of all of what was going on in the United States in terms of industrialization, changes in media, um, technological advances, um, the great disparities of wealth. Um, and, you know, sort of all of that sort of brings forward these presidents who oftentimes are just erased or nobody knows anything about them. So, in doing that, what did you find in terms of how we should assess these presidents that are kind of unknown to many of us?
1: So I I don't want to scare uh, readers off. I wrote the book and I went deep um, for two reasons. One, I wanted to make academic points that scholars, my fellow scholars would respect, but I'm a lover of great history and I wanted to try and write a great story about American history, not just about the politics and economics, but how they interacted with each other. It's just—it's not rattling off. Here's who did what and when. I want to. Causal story of how the politics affected the economics, affected the politics, now it's spread out to affect culture and science and technology and women's rights and African-Americans and disease and immigration uh, and all sorts of, stuff. I want to show how it all sort of weaves together and then back in on itself to sort of tell this evolution of the of, uh, United States. So for folks who are just in, uh, into this for good, good sort of history, good politics uh, of the presidency, I hope they'll they'll find a lot in this and be able to find it really readable. As a political scientist, what I wanted to do was take a look. One problem with drawing lessons the presidency is most folks tend to just take a look at the success stories and say, here's what Washington, Lincoln, and Roosevelt did, and that's what you should do. Well, that, you know, maybe some of the failures did some of these same things, but we don't know in, in case if you don't look at the failures. So I want to take a look at the success stories and compare them with the failures. Did the success stories do similar things across presidency and that the failures did not? Did the failures do things in common that the success stories did not? And can we find changes in between the terms of the two term pregnancies that sort of match these things, right? And a lot came out. I expected nothing. I thought it was going to be kind of random. And I was really sort of surprised. So, for example, one of the things that surprised me is the vision thing. I am I come from a hard science background. I, I My undergrad was in uh, physics. I uh, was at MIT for my PhD program. I'm at Georgia Tech now. We're very hardcore science and engineering. So I thought vision was kind of a political marketing thing and wasn't really worth much in practice. But what I find consistently across these presidents and even outside the Gilded Age is presidents who come into office with a pretty clear, compelling vision for where they want to take the country, do much better than the presidents who uh, don't. Uh, What's a great example here? Chester Arthur is probably one of the worst presidents of the Gilded Age, probably one of the worst presidents in uh, history, because he never really wanted to be president. Uh, He was accepted the nomination for vice president because it was such a surprise. He never thought to get that offer. He was a a state political machine uh, boss up in New York. And then Garfield gets assassinated uh, just a a few months into office, and Arthur is suddenly president, and he has no idea what to do. He has no idea where he wants to take the country, so he basically uh, is the one of the he avoids the office. He spends a lot of his time up in what is called Lincoln's Cottage, about three miles north of the White House. He avoids the White House. He avoids the presidency. He'll do a lot of the ceremonial duties, but as far as that, he's got very—he's got no pol- little or no policy agenda. He doesn't really try and get involved in legislation or with Congress. Uh, he issues a veto, a quiet veto or two. Uh, a timid veto or two that gets overridden. Other than that, he tries to stay out of it. He's really well-known for remodeling the White House and for throwing amazing parties at the White House. Like a time travel, one of my stops would be the Arthur presidency, just to stop in to see what I am on, on there. But other than that, it's dismal. And so, very soon after he enters office, the economy starts drifting into recession and it gets worse and worse until it culminates in a financial crisis in 1884. And Arthur is nowhere to be seen. Not a problem. There are all sorts of things he could have pushed for at the time. And I'm not talking 21st century even 20th century fiscal policy or, or anything like that. But he could have uh, helped out with trade policy, public work projects, uh, tax cuts, you know, support for veterans or other types, what, might, what passed for welfare back then. But none of It was just not my problem. Um, so that's one example of a non-visionary president who just sort of, you know, let the country drifted into, into chaos without someone with a vision at the helm. Uh,
2: and and so one, this is one of the key components that you note at the beginning of the book and then you sort of trace it through the book okay. are the key components that sort of come out of your assessment, come out of your research that seem to be vital to thinking about, you know, how we should in fact assess presidents and their great capacities or their capacities for greatness and so one is this idea that I the idea that ideas matter right that you have to have a kind of vision for not only the presidency but also the country as a whole um, and you also talk about the political skill and enthusiasm. Of Presidents um, that they have to actually know how to do politics uh, in a lot of ways, um, and then you know in the in the twentieth century, we can think about somebody like Lyndon Johnson, who was you know quite the expert um, with regard to political skills and coalition building, um, but you talk about this group of presidents, also some of them having some of those very same skill sets. Can you explain why? This this sort of politicking and capacity to put together um, coalitions is so important during this period as well.
1: Co- coalition building, it, the a political skill, both the ability to do it and the will, the desire to do it, are really important Uh, because you're building coalitions around legislation and policy. So you need to get people, you need to get your own people, your advisors, your staff, your appointees on board. You need to establish relationships with Congress to form and pass legislation. And you probably need to bring in major interest groups, whether it's farms or labor or business or other particular interest groups, and maybe even state level uh, uh, groups. And folks like Johnson, uh, FDR were amazing at this in our own time. uh, Bill Clinton was pretty good at this. Uh, So you get politicians who I think the master at this time was McKinley was a very behind-the-scenes type of guy. He wasn't using the telephone a lot. Uh, he was not a big uh, r- rhetorical president. He wasn't a great public speaker, which he recognized. But he was great one-on-one, and he did a lot of these types of one-on-one meeting with people and uh, go, getting out there to engage with party leaders, with congressional people from Congress, with people from the American public, with interest group leaders, and, and just forging a legislative program around his vision of trade protectionism that brought the United States out of the terrible, terrible uh, Great Depression of 1893 to 1897. When we say Great Depression, we think of the 1930s. But before then, when people talked about the Great Depression, they were talking about the 1893 to 1897 period. And McKinley was key to delivering the United States out of that. And he would—he had this vision, came into office with the vision of trade protectionism. And I'm not saying trade protectionism is good or bad. I'm just he had a vision of where he wanted to take the country and he built a coal- actively built a coalition around that vision so again the opposite one of the opposites here is 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 arthur who had no vision probably a good president to look at uh, as far as the coalition building is grant cuz grant did come in to office with a vision he wanted to he had fought the civil war and he wanted to he had fought and won it and he wanted to settle it on terms that he understood which meant bringing uh, uh, civil liberties and rights to African Americans, to bring the economy back to where it had been, paying down the debt, restoring the value of the dollar. And he was able to build coalitions around some of his ideas, going back to the gold standard, uh, and again, a lot of civil liberties and civil rights actions, but he had all sorts of other ideas that he really wasn't able to build coalitions around, and he wasn't able to exert the same skill. For example, he wanted to take over um, San Domingo, which is uh, uh, Dominican Republic uh, and and take that over as a territory or a state and then use its resources as a uh, source of wealth for the American economy, wasn't able to do that. He wanted to create, I believe, new departments in the executive branch, wasn't able to do that. He had lots of great ideas uh, that we would today consider no-brainers in terms of providing more public welfare, uh, infrastructure spending, etc. Wasn't able to build those coalitions because he really was in some ways a political novice the more tried and true parts of his vision he was able to build the coalition in other parts he wasn't and it showed up in the economy specifically the 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 panic of 1873 and the five-year recession that followed
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: the means of assessment and, and sort of the data that you amass is note that part of Grant's administration, the, the first part um, or his first term, is, is much more successful than his second term. Um, which, it, again, you also do this with, with um, Cleveland, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. or maybe I'm confusing things, but I think also with Cleveland, who had, you know, again, the only president with non-consecutive two terms. Um, So in terms of, you know, and, and you say in laying this out historically, that you're also trying to sort of see the connections from administration to administration, which is interesting in that it's, you know, it sort of pushes together the president's Um, in ways that a lot of times, you know, we don't do that necessarily because we're like, this is a Democratic president. This is a Republican president. They have different policy trajectories. Um, But you're really interested in and what you see, and I found this really fascinating, is how these administrations sort of feed into each other. Can you talk a little bit about how that kind of forms the framework for what you're also doing in this book
1: yeah that's i'm i'm nodding my head vigorously as you're saying all this i think a big problem with presidential studies whether it's history or political science is we tend to study these presidents in isolation but they're not just popping in sui generis into the white house they're coming in in the middle of a of an ongoing stream of uh political forces economic forces ideas that are flowing around about politics and economics and policy in foreign policy events so to study and they're and they're handing each other off so some presidents are reacting against the fail, perceived failures and weaknesses of the other so for example uh, Cleveland came in to clean up what was the perceived uh, 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 laziness and corruption of Arthur. Hayes came in as basically the third term of the Grant administration. So some of them are continuous and some of them are directions against. And that matters because when economic crises hit, voters tend to reject the existing regime and say, hey, we need something new, depending on how deep and how long lived the economic crisis is. Um, So one thing that I found And you mentioned Grant and Cleveland, is both of these guys ran into trouble when they were, got? and perhaps always, when they get very, very stubborn and very inflexible. So Ronald Reagan used to say, if I can get 80% of what I want, I'm happy to get away the other 20%. And we find that true again and again in many of the successful presidents across time. They have a vision that's pretty clear, compelling, and concise but they are flexible in achieving that vision. The diehards, the stubborn, I am not changing. These would be uh, Grant in his second term on the gold standard, Cleveland in his constitutionalism, uh, Hoover in his own philosophy, and a few others. When they get stubborn and say, "I am, I, I'm going, we're following this vision into the sun," that's when bad stuff happens.
2: So what you're suggesting is presidents should be more
1: flexible. Right. On the other hand, you don't want to be so flexible that your vision evaporates. So this is the story of Harrison. Harrison, one of the most educated, talented, experienced presidents we've ever had in the White House. The man ran several of his own departments on his own because many of his cabinet members uh, resigned or were ill or were not around. So he took over major aspects of government. And ran it himself. He was often the smartest, most talented guy in the room, but he, his, and he had a vision for the country. He was very pro-industrial, pro-globalization, or rather, I should say, pro-industrial. He believed in tariff protectionism, but it was to the to the point of building up the, the U.S. economy and U.S. industry. Um, the problem was. This was overridden by his hatred for Democrats. He had been a pretty diehard Republican. He had fought in the Civil War and he believed that the Democrats were basically the leftover party of the Confederacy and that they were trying to win the Civil War through politics what they could not get through conflict. So he saw he his top idea, his primary goal was to make sure the Republican Party stayed together. And won elections at both the federal and the state and whatever level they could. So he would he got behind. He was very good at politics. He built coalitions like few others in American history, and he got through so much legislation. This was the billion dollar Congress of his uh, of the of his first two years. Trade, pensions, all sorts of programs. But they were such a hodgepodge, because it was trying to satisfy all these factions of the Republican Party, that they basically threw the the U.S. financial uh, 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 balance uh, out of whack. The U.S. was bringing in, bringing in too little revenue and spending out too much in gold. So its gold reserves started shrinking, shrinking, and disappearing, causing investors towards the end of the term to fear that the U.S. would be able to pay its debts and it would either have to devalue the currency or partially repudiate its debts, which are essentially the same thing. So they began to flee the economy, and he hands over basically the panic of 1893 to Cleveland. So here's a guy who had a vision, but he so diluted it by trying to appeal to every interest group that it, he wound up with a hodgepodge. And you see this in other presidents over time. And and we can recognize this when presidents are trying to play politics, trying to appeal to their different interest groups. And you get things like high inflation. Uh, or, you know, high deficits or other ruination of the economy.
2: And during this time, it, the issue around the gold standard, um, which we're hearing a little bit about that these days, because um, I think South Carolina is still trying to get back on the gold standard, or they were a couple of years ago Um that this was a real key component to politics at the time, as well as economic policy at the time, because of the way that the United States had operated kind of off the gold standard during the Civil War, um, I think. Um, And so what was going on with that in the U.S. economy that presidents were sort of talking about it all the time, and it became a real backbone with regard to economic policy.
1: Sure. So monetary policy, gold standard is confusing in any era. And I try and explain it really clearly at the basic level uh, in the book. Um, so readers should not be scared off by it. You do not need a degree in economics to read this book. I will help teach you this stuff through the book. So, the basic idea is back at the time, today the US is the most competitive economy in the world, right? So, you know, there's few other places to invest that are going to be as good, as reliable, as liquid, as good rate of return as the United States. Back in the Gilded Age, this was not the case. We were just another developing country, a very good one, but investors, both foreign and domestic, had choices. They could put their money into Australia or Brazil or Argentina or a number of other. Countries, and their fear was: Am I going to get the same value out that I put in? Am I going to be paid out in dollars worth the same that I put in? And the uh, the U.S. went into the U.S. had been on the gold standard. Then it goes into the Civil War and prints money like crazy, so it devalues the value of the dollar of the paper dollar by about seventy five percent, and. Grant and then Hayes after him, rebuild the value of the dollar, partly by limiting the printing of greenbacks, which is what the you know the, the printed money was called at the time, and partly by growing the economy as much as policy to grow the economy up to the value of the dollar. And they achieved that by 1879. And then it's the battle of the remaining presidents to sort of sustain that, because a solution to you know any economic recession or depression is, hey, let's print more money. But if you money, and investors get scared, hey, these dollars that I invested aren't going to be worth much or are going to be worth less than what I invested. And I have other places to put my money. Today the United States can print a lot because there aren't much better where are you going to put your money? China? You know, it's it's I mean China's good, but you're not going to get the liquidity, the competitiveness, the innovation that you get from the United States. So at the time we did not have the exorbitant uh, privilege of Uh, That we do now. Does that help explain things?
2: I think so. I think so. And at the same time, this is something that's constantly discussed during all these administrations. Is the idea of you know keeping the U.S. on the gold standard, what that means, how important it is for the economy, and so absolutely, this is you know again, as you know, sort of a, a linchpin of the Grant and Hayes administrations, but. Um, it obviously doesn't go away because it becomes a vital component of campaigns and elections that sort of thread all the way through this period. Can you explain right. a little bit about why that is the case?
1: Sure. So so two reasons. One is that, you know, if you're going to stay on the gold standard, you can't expand the money supply. To help out your economy. You've got to keep your, your printed money equal to gold. And this is a problem. When you're developing the West, all sorts of businesses out there need credit and loans, and they need sort of that that, that extra money supply flowing their way, and they're not getting it. So there's a lot of pressure from the West to print more money. And as they start discovering silver in Nevada, Colorado, people start saying, hey, let's start using silver as legal tender. And of course, the conservative investors, the banking finance community say, no, that's the same problem as printing money. If you produce another type of currency, it's going to potentially devalue uh, the dollar. So there becomes a battle between silver and gold. Uh, during Hayes and after Hayes, uh, right up uh, up until McKinley finally puts the U.S. formally on the gold standard and says, no, silver is not going to be the legal tender. But you're going to get these battles, especially when the U.S. goes into recession to add silver. And this is what Harrison was doing. Harrison wanted a lot of these new states that came on in the late 80s and early 90s were uh, uh, Western states, silver producing states. So he said, let's do something for silver. So he started hinting that he was going to allow silver as legal tender, equal possibly to gold, and that begins to freak out investors. That hey, if we go to a bimetallic standard and gold, then our gold dollars, our dollars backed by gold, are going to start losing value, and they start fleeing the economy. Cleveland is diehard gold, but he's stubborn, inflexible diehard gold. So whenever gold is threatened, he gets in there and is a active, proactive president. But he's also a strict constitutionalist. His vision is he thinks all the economic problems of the building age feed back to too much government, which is too much government corruption. Anytime government gets involved in policy, fiscal policy, trade policy, whatever, it's an opportunity for people, interest groups to get in there and take advantage and get their piece of the pie. And he thinks that's corrupt. And he says, you know, the average person sees government doing it, so they start doing it themselves, and it all sort of collapses. So if we get back... To our pre Civil War strictly constitutional rules, then all this will be solved. So he wants a Congress that is going to legislate and a president that is going to administrate. And he's not going to get involved in legislation unless gold gets threatened. So most of the time, he tries to hang back and just do his presidential duty except when gold is threatened. So you get the 1893 economic crisis when he comes into office during a second term and he says, nothing, I'm going to be a constitutional president. economy for months. All the economic dominoes are falling. Businesses are collapsing. Bankruptcies are soaring. Unemployment, riots. Companies are issuing their own script in place of money because they can't get any money. And they're begging Cleveland to intervene. He says, no, no, no. Finally, when everything's fall apart, uh, months into six months into office or so, he says, okay, I will call Congress and to do something. And he very actively and adroitly plays politics really well, and he gets through legislation to put gold back on, uh, put dollar back towards gold. But the U.S. is still not bringing enough money to, enough revenue to keep its financial sheet in order. But that's trade policy. He's like, that's not my job. That's Congress's job. And he does a little bit of politics, but he kind of kicks back and doesn't, and he really fumbles the ball. And that means that crisis just goes on for the next years of his presidency, and it destroys him because he's not very good at the rhetoric either. There's another aspect that I find is that presidents who are getting out there and build relationships with the American people through you know, speeches, appearances, public image building, relations with the press, these all matter. And Cleveland hates that stuff. Uh, he hates reporters, journalists. He thinks they're ghouls and liars. He doesn't like going around and me, you know meeting the American people. Uh, so he both spends his free time fishing and going off on his own. And everyone, he's just one. He exit office one of the most hated presidents of his era.
2: And of course, he does have that asterisk because he is the only president thus far who has served non-consecutive terms, right, um, right. which is also like weird um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I'm going to ask you, I'm going to press you on this um, because Rutherford B. Hayes and I share an alma mater and we haven't really talked much about my pal Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, <laughs> and, and you do a lot in, in the book to, to some degree rehabilitate Rutherford B. Hayes and his reputation in the office, because he is often seen as one of the weakest presidents in this period. But you talk about the fact that, in fact, he was a lot stronger in a lot of different ways um, than we usually think about him if we think about him at all. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the rehabbing of Hayes's reputation?
1: Yeah, I think if you read a standard biography, and there aren't many of Hayes, he comes across is possibly the most boring president we've got, but when you actually delve into what the guy did in his life, he is an incredible personality. He traveled widely for a young guy in the 1800s. He plunged himself into the Civil War and went through several intense battles. Led led men uh, came out and was not didn't hold grudges. He was very honorable. Um, he allowed his name be. Flipped of Congress. He wasn't much of a Congress person. He went back, uh, allowed himself to be run for governor. He was a pretty active uh, governor. And he was uh, not anyone's first choice for presidential nominee after Grant uh, in the election of, what are we talking about? Eight, 18, um, let me out here. 76. Yeah, 1876. Yeah. But he's, everyone, he's enough people's second choice. He's a clean candidate. He's from the right state. He's on right on all the issues. So he gets elected into office. It's that incredibly close election that is not resolved for months. There's a backroom deal that people are suspicious of. So he comes into office really with trust in him damage. And the great man Grant has left the building and left the country. So the Republican Party begins to fracture. uh, Grant was holding its various factions together, and it all starts falling apart. Very soon after he gets elected, there's a huge, shockingly fast labor uprising that spreads through the country that nobody expected. And this is so soon after the civil war, a disputed election, big labor uprising, that people now wonder if the United States is sort of going to collapse in on itself. We don't think about, it didn't, so people don't talk about it much today. It's sort of a forgotten period. But 1877 is known among historians as the year of violence. And there, there was an incredible amount of violence that year. So Hayes is trying to captain this ship, and he is uh, very uh, sound, very calm. He tries to he he, despite all pressure and a temptation to print his way out of these sorts of crisis, because economy is in this terrible uh, recession. Five years of deep, deep recession after the eighteen 1870- seventy. Uh, crisis. He insists, sticking with Grant's trajectory back towards the gold standard, and he and his Treasury secretary, uh, secretary adroitly guide the American financial system back to gold by 1879, restoring confidence. When this labor strike spreads, uh, governors are asking him to send out the military and shut everything down. He does so very uh, judiciously. They are sent out to uh, maintain the mails and defend federal property, but not to take sides. And so he throws cold water on this labor fire rather than gasoline and doesn't ignite it. Despite pressures, people screaming, "This is anarchy! This is communism! Come to our shores!" He's very judicious. He's very he sticks to his vision, and he starts the first investigation, serious investigation of corruption in the federal bureaucracy. Remember, during Grant, uh, there were all sorts of corruption scandals erupting during his administration. Grant did not benefit from any of these. He did not participate knowingly in any of them, but many of his appointees, allies, supporters did. So to this day, he gets sort of tarnished. A lot of his uh, enemies in the press uh, tarnished him with these, and that reputation has stayed. But Grant didn't participate. Nevertheless, there was that um, atmosphere, that aura of corruption around the government and the Republican Party. And Grant takes a stand. He starts the... Serious investigations, firing some p- pretty serious people, including Chester Arthur, who is a big uh, uh, you know, spoilsman in the New York political machine, who was a customs house boss for a while. He fires... Um, Uh, Arthur. And this sort of begins to restore a certain faith. So by the second half of his presidency, the economies begin to recover. He sends in the army to brutally suppress a Native American uprising out West. And remember, a lot of the source of growth at the time was coming from the West, but investors are worried. Hey, you've got labor uprisings. You've got this contested election. You've got Native Americans, you know, violence in the West. Is this the place we should invest? Grant uh, uh, Hayes you know through his actions says yes we're get, we're tamping down on corruption we're securing the west uh, at the expense obviously of native americans we're sticking with gold so by the time he leaves office there's an economic problem. money is pouring into the us economy the railroads are being laid again some of the industrial titans the, those great gilded age corporations are being formed and i would argue that didn't necessarily single-handedly cause any of this, but he he sort of guided the ship of state towards this prosperity at a time when we could have collapsed into a banana republic.
2: And and so again, Hayes, an often undersung um, president, uh, is is really one of the sort of I don't want to say heroes, but sort of strong presidents given. Um, the assessment mechanisms that you're looking at in terms of economic development, in terms of vision for the country, um, in terms of sort of political talent that, you know, he, he wasn't really just a sort of little dot on the presidential horizon.
1: Yeah. He what's, what's the saying? Um, uh, su- superheroes don't always wear capes. I mean, holloway's is never going to make a movie about Hayes. But he really did well, given the hand he was given. So I don't know if he can be qualified as a great president, but he might qualify as a near great, at least from an economic perspective.
2: And the economic perspective, obviously, is the one that's guiding your book, because you're really interested in the connection between presidents and economic policies. And we've talked a lot about the gold standard, um, but you know, oftentimes presidents are blamed for a bad economy and sometimes are praised for a good economy. Um, but you're really trying to get into what that actually means during this period. Um, and, and obviously we didn't have modern polling techniques in the Gilded Age. Um, but what is it that you saw besides the issues around gold that, um, You know, we see a lot that has to do with sort of fiscal policy, um, tariffs and trade that come in to all of this um, and how presidents are are acting in in that regard. Can you talk a little bit
1: about that? So, and and before I leave Hayes, we got to have an uh, important asterisk in that from a raw, pragmatic, cold economic perspective, he did well, but he did obviously. No favors for Native Americans. They did not, you know, they were they, they sacrificed and went through incredible pain and suffering. He did no favors for African Americans. He, uh, you know, abandons uh, Reconstruction, which was sort of being abandoned anyway. Uh, but Grant was a great hero for uh, he really fought for it as much as he could at the time. And Hayes Hayes did not, and it's it's very sad. Um, but moving forward, there's no particular set of policies that come forward as being, yes, this is what presidents must be doing. So there's not a a silver bullet in terms of policy solutions. And that dovetails with my other research on science, technology, innovation, national competitiveness, that sort of thing. There are lots of different ways to make a, a competitive economy. But one thing that the successful presidents do that the failures do not is they create and maintain trust in American political economic institutions including the presidency itself so what grant hayes mckinley do is they create or restore trust in the american dollar the american financial system and banking system and they do so in a ways that reassures the investing and then the business community Whereas folks like Harrison and Cleveland and Arthur, they allowed that trust to be undermined or sometimes they might even actively undermine it like Harrison did by letting the financial the balance sheet get so out of whack. So I do think that trust building is important and that is the most difficult thing to sort of measure empirically because the good thing about the economy As opposed to domestic policy or war or other aspects of presidential behavior, is you can get data. You can get objective economic data. So it doesn't matter if you're doing it right, what my particular beliefs are, we can point to some data and say, yes, this president did, did, did relatively better than that president.
2: And, and this trust building, obviously, it's not the trusts that are then going to be busted. So it's a different trust. Um, it's faith. <laughs> <laughs> um, so because there are lots of trusts going on here um, during this period of time. But this is also something that you bring forward in making the case for why studying the Gilded Age presidents is useful for our understanding of where we are now in contemporary politics in the United States and also contemporary studying of the presidents, that there are Uncanny parallels. Um, and that, you know, this idea of trust building in American institutions, in the presidency, in the judiciary, um, in the United States as the reserve currency now, as we've talked about that that is vitally important now, as it was then. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you saw in comparing these two periods of
1: time? Oh, a tremendous similarities. Again, financial crisis pandemics the the overwhelming forces of globalization and technological change driving uh, uh, new coalition's and divisions within the United States and the absence of of serious foreign pol- foreign threats you know existential uh, uh, threats um, so did you have do you have particular
2: no, I just, I, I mean, as I was reading along, I was like, wow, he's right. It's, it's oddly <laughs> similar <laughs> as we I, I sort of the, look at all of these aspects.
1: I think presidents still have to do the same thing. I think we want presidents who come into office with a relatively clear and compelling vision, presidents who can be flexible in delivering that, who are willing and able to build coalitions. I think this is Obama's Achilles heel. He was a good campaigner. He was a thoughtful and serious policy walk, but I get the impression uh, from my own observations and from reading those of other great uh, presidential scholars um, that he wasn't willing to play politics. He just found the whole operation kind of, you know, dirty. That you get, you know, adults in the room, and where you differ, you negotiate to a compromise, and you solve the problems out there. And his opponents were not up for doing that. They wanted to basically fight him on everything. And Obama was not willing to play the dirty game of flattering or coercing or threatening or cutting the side deals in the way that perhaps you know, Biden has been able. Biden, given all his experience in the uh, in Congress, gets how those folks work. So I think, and you know, we're, we're in the middle of Biden administration, so we won't be able to say this with confidence until years out. We've gotten to see all the the conversations in the archives. But he seems to have been able to play the game, the political game, in a way that maybe Obama wasn't willing or or able.
2: And I wanted to ask you one question about process. This is a,
1: an extensive
2: book. There are a lot of footnotes. Um, (laughs) There there is a very long um, bibliography at the end of it. And, and you talk about the fact that, you know, you're more used to working with um, quantitative data than necessarily all of this qualitative data. Um, But that obviously you can't tell the story with just the numbers. That's one of the things that you talk about. Um, can you explain just a little bit about how much work you put into this book?
1: Probably too much. I started getting into this in 2012. Um, so, and I tried at first to cover all presidents, and I've got thousands of pages of draft material. And then I realized this was getting too huge. So I really had to dive deep. And again, I told you why I got into the Gilded Age, because it was so similar. And again, the leverage of having the presidency and the federal government being so weak at this time. So that's why I chose those presidents. But I was very in, you know, one, I'm serious about the social science, so I wanted to do this in a serious way, and I was very intimidated and cognizant of the fact that I was leaving my own field, subfield of science, technology, uh, you know, economic, uh, political economy, and going mid-career into an established field of president, presidential and executive politics with a lot of very talented, very accomplished scholars. And I'm walking over there saying, hey, I want to play. I really felt I needed to establish my uh, credentials. And I'm still very intimidated by, by scholars like yourself and, and others in the field because I read this work and it's, I think it's some of the best in political science, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, uh, the American political developments, all of it. It's just it's amazing to me. And just to be able to get published and be in conversation with these folks is an incredible honor.
2: Um, So now that you've written this extensive study that took you a little bit of time, what are you working (laughs) on now, Zach?
1: (laughs) So I'm trying to take the thousands of pages of draft material that I have across all presidents and condense them into a more, even more approachable coverage of all the presidents. So now that I've gone deep in the Gilded Age, I want to go broad. And I want to appeal even more. At the same time, I want to keep it relevant to scholars. I want to appeal even more to general readers—folks who are just like reading American history, American presidents, uh, that sort of thing. So hopefully, in that, in this next book, I'll be able to do that because I think Oxford University Press, God bless them, that was the original book that I put that I pushed, and as it got into thousands of pages, they were like, "Wait a minute!" And I said, "Let's go Gilded Age," and they said, "No one's going to read about the Gilded Age." I said, "Trust me, it'll be good." It'll be good, I promise. And even then, it was probably too large for them. So now I'm trying to deliver the the book that they originally wanted. So if you're listening to this up there, any of my editors are listening, watch out. Hopefully, this will be coming soon.
2: (laughs) Awesome. Um, Well, I look forward to talking to you about that book once it's published, Um, and we will have you back on the New Books in Political Science podcast. I would like to thank um, Zach Taylor uh, for talking to me today about presidential leadership in feeble times explaining executive power in the gilded age just published by oxford university press i know this is available at the oxford university press website is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence to which you would like to give a shout out
1: um i think it's most accessible on online uh, as far as buying copies That's so fine. yeah I, i'm in washington right now i've actually wandered around bookstores trying to hunt it out and i haven't seen it yet because uh, it's relatively new. It's copyrighted twenty twenty four, just hit the presses actually in November twenty twenty three. So I think as Buzz gets out, I'll begin to hopefully it'll begin to appear in bookstores. But for now, uh, go online. Best place to buy it. All one. right.
2: Thanks. Thank you for joining me today, Zach. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you. This is a lot of fun.